You ever had one of those mornings where like nothing seems to line up right? That just seems to be today for me. I think it, I told Meredith last night, it all started with the Texas and the, the Tech game last night. It ruined my night. I was just mad. She was ironing my shirt and I was, I was trying to be grateful, but I was just in a horrible mood. I was like, this, I'm just in a bad mood. And I, I think for whatever reason, uh, the chaos has ensued over to this morning. But, you know, there, there's a lot of things going on in the life of our community and we want to take a few minutes each week if, when we can to kind of paint those for each other so that we can share in, in life together. Part of living as a community is sharing in, in hurts and pains and struggles and needs um, as well as in joys and excitements and triumphs as well. And, and I want to let you know about a couple of things. One, one of the things we're going to pray for this morning and then we're going to um, do a little something different than we, we would normally do for the other thing. The first thing is that those, those of you that know um, Jimmy and Ann Smith, they've been part of our community um, for quite a while now and, and are part of our leadership of our young professionals group. Well, Last weekend, Jimmy had a pretty good bike accident, and I say good, I mean real good. He broke his uh, clavicle and his scapula, and he has to have surgery on this Wednesday, and it's kind of a big deal, and Anne, who is a student, is in the middle of tests, and life is chaos, but they're here this morning because they're troopers, and uh, I want to take a few minutes and just pray for them. Um, they are sitting right back over here, and if you, you see Jimmy or Anne today and you want to tell them you love them. Um, then we want to be a part of that with them. So we're going to take a few minutes and just pray that over the next few weeks, the Lord will be present in their life. I mean, I know that recovering from this is going to take up to eight weeks or so um, for Jimmy to fully recover and just the, the chaos that sort of ensues there. And um, we're really grateful that that's all that happened. I mean, it could have been a lot more serious than that. And we're grateful that God has been providing, but we want to pray for them. So if you're sitting next to them, I'm going to ask you just to kind of reach out and don't put your hand on his shoulder, okay? But... <laughs> If you want to reach out and just lay your hand on them, if you're close enough to do that, um, please do so. And we're just going to pray for them real quick together that God's hand would be on them. So if you're sitting in their general vicinity, which is right there uh, where Sarah's moving towards, let's put our hands on, on Anna and Jimmy and just sort of play, pray for them together. Lord, we are grateful for the opportunity to gather in this place together. And we're grateful that you love us and care for us. And we thank you um, that we're part of a family that has the ability to, to pray for and care for each other. Lord, we do pray for... Uh, for Jimmy, over the next few days, as he prepares for and goes into surgery, we pray that your hands would be with those physicians and that the surgery would not only go well, but recovery would be um, easier than expected. And then over the chaos of those things that unfold this week, God, that you would be with Anne, that you would help her with all of her exams and um, allow her to be able to see clearly, um, Lord, and that the, the worries of life and the stressful things that sort of have a way of creeping into our life around situations like this, God, would would not be an issue. They would know that this community loves them with the love of Jesus Christ. And so, God, have your hand on them um, in Jesus' name. And we're grateful, God, that you did protect Jimmy the way that you did and that we're praying over surgery um, instead of something worse. And, God, we're grateful. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Um, one of the other things we have going on in the life of our community is um, a lot of you are aware that, that we have a pretty active relationship and role in the, the life of a lot of folks in the Good Home Park area where we do worship. Actually, on um, October 24th, we'll be back there doing worship in the park. But we have a pretty active role. We've got a, a lot of relationships with some of uh, our, our friends that live down there, some of whom are homeless, um, some who are not, um, but are just have, have great need. We lead a Bible study on Wednesday down there. We have a lunch and Bible study, and it's just an awesome experience out there in the park. But a lot of those folks, or a handful of those folks, are really active in our community. Um, they come to church every week. You guys may know Michael. You may have met Jimmy and Terry and Ray and Angel um, and some of these people over the, uh, the weeks. Paul, you may, you may have met these folks. They're here, and a lot of them are here today. 
Well, sometimes life on the streets is, is really hard. It's really difficult. I mean, what an understatement, right, that we can sit here and say that. But just a few weeks ago, Paul, who uh, rides his bike here almost, you know, pretty much every week and who we know got beat up real bad, um, still having a hard time eating and chewing. Talked to him this morning. He's here. He can't eat. He's having a hard time chewing. He just got beat up one day while he was sleeping. Um, Michael and Terry and Ray, they're here, or they're here this morning, or at least Michael and Terry are, and, and they're struggling with life on the street. And come to find out just a few days ago, someone robbed Terry and Ray, took everything that they had. They don't have one thing, no clothes, no clothes, no stuff. So last Thursday, we ran and, and got them some shirts and pants. But the reality is, is that what would your life look like if you had nothing? And I mentioned to these guys that I was going to do this because I, I don't want it to be a source of embarrassment, but I wanted to be a source of community pulling together. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to take a special offering, special cash offering, where every dollar that we collect is going to go to buy specific and immediate needs for some of our, um, our homeless uh, friends that are, are in immediate need of clothes. I mean, if you lost everything that you had, shoes, everything, um, where do you turn? Where do you go? You don't have an income. Well, as a community, one of the things that we can do is we can replace those things. So we're going to take a special offering this morning, um, which directly after worship today, uh, we'll take that money, we'll purchase those things, sleeping bags and blankets and toiletries and clothes and boots, and then we'll distribute them to, to Ray and Terry and Michael and Paul and some of those guys and uh, people that have been coming and being part of this community that are here. And if you see, have you seen those folks sitting around and, and you see them at the table or you see them over here and you've never introduced yourself, why? Just say hello and meet them. There's as much part of this community as anything that, that we do or, or you are as well. Um, and, and part of our need together is to take care of each other's um, needs. So I'm going to circulate this bucket right here. And then when it gets to the back of the room, um, Tim, if he's around, or Mike, if one of you guys would just collect this for me. And uh, we're going to go ahead and, and take care of some of these guys' needs today that we can. Um, if you do not feel compelled, please do not give. This is just one of those things where if you feel compelled to help these guys out, we're not going to be giving cash. We're going to go and specifically get these needs and take care of him, purchase them. Michael's been walking around with a pair of boots that have no bottom. We're going to get him some new boots and do some of those things. So um, we're going to take care of those needs and collect that money and do that. So as part of, of living as the church that we see and reflect in the book of Acts, where no one among them had a need. No one among them had a need. But they all gave so the needs of the community were taken care of. And that's really where we exist today. We're living in a community where we've got people amongst us that have some significant and serious need. And uh, we want to be able to, to help feed and help clothe and take care of some of those needs. So if you can and if you're willing to be a part of that offering this morning, then please, please do that. Um, awesome. Okay, so by way of transition then, all that by way of transition, that <clears throat> over the past three weeks, we have wrapped up a series in the book of 1 Peter called, that I've just really called Hope and Holiness, which... For me, it was just a, uh, an easy way of explaining these two concepts that we were looking at, this idea of hope and this idea of holiness, but really a way of looking at what I believe to be a call to life, that Peter was, was really challenging and calling believers, followers of Jesus, that, that putting our feet in the footsteps of Christ meant, uh, was how we lived. It was a relationship. It was a call to life. And these words, hope and holiness, played a huge role in that call to life. And so we've been exploring those three things. But it, as I got to the end of that, and last week we talked about <clears throat> what it really meant to be called to life, I started really thinking about that idea of calling and, and how God calls us to follow him and how, how we respond or what we do with those things. 
mean, for a lot of us, we think that calling is for, like, Bible people. It's for Bible heroes, or it was for those prophets of the Old and New, or New Testament, or it was for those disciples that followed Jesus. It was, it's for somebody else. But I truly believe with all of my heart that we serve and follow a God who still calls, a God who still whispers, a God who still audibly moves in our life and calls us to lives of radical trust and reliance on him. That calling wasn't something that took place in the Bible only, but that takes place in our lives today, even as we exist. And I really started thinking, Trevor, am I up here just preaching three kind of messages about following Jesus and this call to life, or do I really believe this thing with everything that I am? And so this morning I thought, it might be interesting if we explored this idea of call, explored this idea of a God who still whispers and who still speaks and who still calls us to live lives of radical trust and how you and I can respond to that call even today. We're going to be looking in the Old Testament today in the book of Jeremiah. So if you've got the the Bible in front of you or beside you or you have one there, grab it. And we're going to be in the book of Jeremiah chapter 1 as we really explore what I believe to be Jeremiah, really the call of Jeremiah's life, which I really believe translates to you and I that God is calling us. Literally, he is challenging us and calling us to a life that radically trusts and follows him. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to go ahead and flip there to the book of Jeremiah chapter 1. I guess let's do this. By way of catching up, I don't know if you're really, in, you understand your, your Old Testament history or your history of Israel, and I don't want to spend too much time, but I just want to spend a few minutes, I guess, catching everybody up to speed. Because sometimes when we get into the Old Testament, we kind of go, What's really happening? I mean, there's a lot of things, and there were kings, and there were judges, and there were people, and there were prophets, and then there was God, and there was a fish, and Jonah, and where do all these things sort of fit into this whole little thing? So let me give you just a a brief kind of middle of Israel history, okay, just so you know where we are, because Jeremiah, I mean, it's important that we understand what this book is about and what he's speaking to, but I guess the short history version is this, is that we have King David right in the middle of Israel's history, right? I'm, I'm going to pick up kind of after the judges, but right in the middle of Israel, I have King David. King David was a man after God's own heart. Well, the king that followed David was his son Solomon, and Solomon did all kinds of great things like build the temple. He worked the people really, really hard, but he did some pretty amazing things. Solomon was really wise. He was said to kind of have written most of the Proverbs and Song of Solomon and some of these things, and he was a really wise man, and people respected him, and they, they worked hard for him, but they didn't love it. I mean, he was, he was really a hard kind of king to follow, but they respected his wisdom and where he was going. But towards the end of his life, the people in Israel, there was a lot of tension. There was a lot of tension about following Solomon. I mean, he wasn't really the king that David was. And so there was, a, there was a lot of tension that was starting to happen towards the end of his life. And, and the kingdoms, or really well, there was one kingdom, was starting to get divided into two kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom, which took on the name the kingdom of Israel, which was really about 10 of the 12 tribes. And then there was the southern area, which circled around Jerusalem, which took on the name the, the kingdom of Judah and really had just two tribes. But they, they really didn't get along real well because the southern kingdom was kind of really supportive of Solomon towards the end of his life. And the northern kingdoms were kind of, they were, the northern tribes were kind of going, this guy's working us really, really, really hard. Well, Solomon dies or he gets really close to death and his successor was a king by the name of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam 
nobody really appreciated Rehoboam. I mean, like a lot of the kings of Israel, it was either take him or leave him, and they wanted to leave this one. And he created a ton of issue with the northern kingdom. In fact, they kind of complained. They said, you are working us way, way too hard, and we're not seeing any economic benefit. And so Rehoboam's way of dealing with that kind of issue was to just work the people harder. He's like, you're going to complain? then I'm going to actually work you harder. It's kind of like that football coach you may have or that, that teacher you had that's like, oh, really? You're going to talk about it? How about two-a-days, you know? I don't like two-a-days. How about three-a-days, you know? And, and Rehoboam really was in that same category. People complained, and he said, okay, well, now you can work twice as hard. Well, roughly about 930 B.C., kind of right in there, 926 to 930, the northern kingdom just says, we're done. We're done. We're not following you. And they split. And so 10 tribes split and form an independent state, which is the northern kingdom, and took on the name Israel. They retained the name Israel. Well, the southern kingdom decided to sort of stick it up, stick it around with, with Rehoboam a little bit, and they formed the kingdom of Judah, or the southern kingdom. And those two kingdoms existed as two totally different states. So the people of God are now split following different kings, okay? And most of the prophets that you see in the Old Testament have been raised up to speak against one of these two kingdoms. I mean, that's, the prophets were usually there to speak a word against or to these kingdoms. Well, the northern kingdom existed as an independent state till, oh, I don't know, right about 720 B.C. So right about 720, so a couple hundred years later, they exist, and then they fall to the Babylonians. The Babylonians come in, haul them off into exile, wipe them out, and the southern kingdom is left. And the southern kingdom exists till about 586 B.C., and then it gets wiped out by the, um, uh, excuse me, the Assyrians take over the north, the Babylonians wipe out the south. And they're all carried off into exile. And then the final part of the Old Testament is where the, the, the Israelites come back and they reestablish the wall and they reestablish the kingdom and you've got Ezra and Nehemiah and all these things. Okay, but that's what's happening. And Jeremiah comes along about 100 years after the northern kingdom had already been taken into captivity. And his sole call from the Lord is to tell the southern kingdom, okay, that kingdom that's remained, that you, if you don't follow the Lord, are getting ready to get wiped out just like the northern kingdom did. I mean, that was his job and call from the Lord was to go speak to the kings and rulers of the southern kingdom and say, you see what happened to the northern kingdom, how the, how the Assyrians came in and wiped them out? It's getting ready to happen to you. You better turn and follow the Lord because judgment is coming. The Old Testament prophets really were the mouthpiece and the voice of God. And they spoke really into these, these really were the main two categories. They spoke words against to the, and to these kingdoms about pending judgment. Okay, boring, I get it. But it's important because Jeremiah is being raised up as a prophet with a dangerous mission. His mission is to go and tell the king that he's not going to be king any longer. And if you know anything about kingdoms, that doesn't ever go over real well. But Jeremiah had a call. All right, and that's what we're going to pick up this morning in Jeremiah chapter 1 as God speaks a call into Jeremiah, gives him the word that will literally cause, you know, could cause him his very life. So let's go ahead and flip there if you've got Jeremiah chapter 1 out there. And uh, before we do that, let's just pray. Lord, I thank you for today, and I thank you that um, we have the opportunity to open your word together and that your word is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. We pray that you would speak to our hearts today, that you would open us up to, to really what I believe to be the call of our lives, lives that follow you, and that how we respond is actually of incredible importance. So God, speak to us today. Take just a moment and ask God to speak to your heart. Ask him to challenge your ideas of trust this morning.
Pray for someone beside you, even if you know their name just, or don't know their name. Just pray that God would, would move in them and, and work in them. God, we love you. We pray that you would make your word just come alive in our heart this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so all that. Here we are in history. The northern kingdom's been carried away. They're living in exile out with the Assyrians. The Babylonians are rising to power. Um, things are chaos. The southern kingdom is, is almost at a place. In about 40 years, they're going to collapse and fall. Right about 626 B.C. is when Jeremiah gets his call from the Lord. The kingdom falls in 586. So about 40 years, and the kingdom's getting ready to get wiped out. Everyone's going to be either killed or taken off into exile. And the, and the call of the Lord comes to Jeremiah. Let's look at verse 4. Chapter 1, verse 4, book of Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to me, saying... Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Ah, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am only a child. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a child. You must go everywhere I send you and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and he touched my mouth and he said to me, now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Now, when we look in scripture of when God calls someone or when God commissions someone, either a prophet or a disciple or somebody, it usually kind of follows a pattern. Now, not always, but more often than not, we see a pattern unfold in the life of someone that God calls. And the pattern usually goes like this. The Lord calls them. And in the Old Testament, it either happens kind of audibly, like a dialogue with the Lord, or it happens via a messenger, an angel of the Lord, or, or sometimes it, it happens through a prophet. But it usually comes in some kind of interaction. The New Testament, we really see it happening through Jesus himself, Jesus calling people. Or after Jesus' death and resurrection, we see it happening through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit speaking to people. But nonetheless, the Lord calls someone, and it's always undeniable. I mean, people know that it's the voice of the Lord. So God calls. The second thing that usually happens is the person comes up with some kind of excuse or objection. So they have a dialogue with God of why this can't work. And sometimes it's audible, like they argue. They're like, God, I can't. Sometimes it's physical. I mean, you remember the book of Jonah? I mean, God calls Jonah. He says, Jonah, here's your only job. I want you to go to Nineveh, right, which was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians were horrible people. He says, I want you to go to the capital of Nineveh, and I want you to proclaim the word of the Lord to him. So what does Jonah do? He runs. He takes off for Tarshish and tries to sail to the end of the world. Well, we know how that story ended up. But jo Jonah's argument with the Lord was physical. He left. Well, a lot of times we see people kind of arguing and dialoguing with God, coming up with excuses why they can't do this or why they can't do that. The third step that we see is God reassuring people. God basically showing up and saying, yes, you can and you kind of will. So you need to get over it. And, and it doesn't always happen really easy. It's not really gentle where God always puts his arm around somebody and walks them and goes, hey, listen, I'm going to really give you the power. I mean, sometimes God works in really powerful ways. I mean, how does God reassure Jonah? He sends this giant fish, swallows him, throws him up on dry land. I mean, it's not exactly arm on the shoulder, kind of, it's going to be okay, it's fine. Throw yourself overboard and I'll have a fish eat you. And then I'll tell you again, you're still going to go to Nineveh. I mean, this is how this works, right? I mean, this is what we see. God reassures people. You remember Moses? I mean, God showed up to Moses and he says, you're going to go to Pharaoh and you're going to tell him to let my people go. 
And Moses is like, I can't. I mean, I don't even know how to speak well. There's no way I can do this. And God says, sure, yes, you will. And you're going to do really great things because I'm with you and I will give you signs and wonders. So we see God reassuring and comforting people. So he calls them, they object, he reassures them. And then usually attached, the fourth piece is really usually attached to that reassurance or comforting. There's some kind of sign. God does something really tangible. And sometimes it comes in really powerful ways. Like God told Moses, he says, throw your staff down on the ground, remember? And he threw his stick down there and it turned into a snake. And then God says, pick it up. So Moses reaches down and grabs it by the tail and it turns back into a staff. And God says, I'm going to give you greater things to do than this. I mean, sometimes it comes in really powerful ways like that. Sometimes it comes in, in whispers. Sometimes it comes by God pointing people to history. And he says, you know what I've done through your forefathers, what I did before you even came? Can't you see that I brought them out of Egypt, that I, that I parted the Red Sea? I mean, don't you see the things that I've done? Trust me. But the calling of someone in the scripture is, is usually kind of followed in that pattern. God calls, they flip out, God reassures very strongly, and then shows them something powerful that God has done. And the person usually ends up following, or at least somewhat following, the Lord. Fascinating. Well, it's interesting, because Jeremiah, I mean, it's just in those verses we read, he follows this pattern. I mean, he really follows this pattern. Let's look at it together. Look, the God, God calls Jeremiah, verse 4, the word of the Lord came to me, saying. So the word of the Lord, it, it comes to him, just like, uh, you know, we explained. God has this sort of audible conversation, or at least as we see it in this book, audible conversation with Jeremiah. Jeremiah hears it, and Jeremiah dialogues back with God. He's like, but God, I can't. I'm only a child. And then God says it back to Jeremiah. Now, sometimes we see it in other ways, angels of the Lord and things, but right here in Jeremiah, we see Jeremiah having this sort of audible, or at least in his own mind audible, experience with God. But either way, absolutely undeniable. All right? It is the Lord. Jeremiah recognizes that, and he knows that the word of the Lord came to me. So verse 4, the word of the Lord came to me and says this, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart to be a prophet of the nations. So the call of, on Jeremiah's life begins with this. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And I really love this call from the Lord because it really is a reminder of God's deep love for his creation. And it's really echoed through scripture. He looks at, at Jeremiah and he says, before I made you in your mother's womb, before I formed you, I knew you. And this is echoed in Psalm, we've talked about it in here before, when God tells David in Psalm 139, I knit you together in your mother's womb. I mean, God is intimately involved in the life of his creation, and he knows Jeremiah. He says, before I made you, I knew you. See, God knows creation intimately. He knows you deeply. It means that you're not an accident, no matter what you've been told. You're not the result of some kind of mistake. I mean, I visited with, with several of, of the kids that used to be in my youth group years ago who lived lives where they were told by their parents that they were a mistake because they were the youngest by like 11 years of, of their siblings and had parents that said, we didn't mean to have you. And they lived with that. But the reality of God is that whether or not you've been told you were a mistake by your parents or that you feel like your life is flawed, the reality of God is that God made you. He formed you. You are not a mistake in the eyes of God. And this is what he's telling Jeremiah. I formed you. I created you. I knit you. And before that, before I even thought about that, I knew you. Man, I love this. How do we get to know somebody? We spend time with them. 
You know, you want to get to know the person you're going to marry. I want to get to know my wife or my fiance. I spend time with them. I learn their heart. God knew Jeremiah before Jeremiah was. I mean, God knows his creation so intimately. The book of John actually tells us that God knows us so intimately that every hair on your head is numbered. Interesting. Makes me wonder what else God knows, but he knows us that well, intimately. And it's important because his call was not, this is just some kind of random person in a random place. He wasn't like, it wasn't like Jeremiah was in the wrong place at the wrong time. God made him and God knew him. And you and I need to remember this about our own lives, is that God knows us that well. He made us. It means our life isn't a flaw or a mistake. It says, I formed you and I knew you. All right, so my call begins with intimate knowledge. Okay, when God whispers a call to our life, it's not because God's out of other people. It's not because God went through all the really great Christians and now is sort of at the end of the list. I mean, God calls you because he knows you. The second part of Jeremiah's call says this, I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Now, those of you that were here last week or the past few weeks, remember that we've really been exploring this idea of... Um, of God's calling and of God's setting apart. So I appointed you, before you were born, I set you apart and I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. We explored this word holiness over the past three weeks and we decided that holiness, that part in 1 Peter where, where Peter says, you know, do this, you are to be holy because he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Remember that? We explored that that was a quote from the book of Leviticus chapter 11 and that word holy was the Hebrew word kadosh which means to be set apart. Well, if you look at your text here in Jeremiah, it says, before you were born, I set you apart. You know what that word is? It's the word kadosh. It's the exact same thing that Peter was using when he referred to being holy. It means that God has set you apart for an amazing, special purpose, which gives a lot of power to what we've studied in 1 Peter. But really what it tells us is that it's God who takes the initiative. I set you apart. This is God's work. God is moving and calling and taking the initiative. This is hard for us to swallow a lot of times because we want to be the one that tells God when and where and what we won't do. So I will follow here, I will do this, I will do this, but I'm not going to do that. But when it's God who takes the initiative with us, when it's God who begins to say, I set you apart, remember that. It really changes everything. Because we don't get to pick and choose what we do for the Lord. We don't decide if we're going to, you know, do this and not do that, or I'll follow as long as it doesn't cost me too much, or, or whatever. But when God sets us apart, he says, you are mine. Remember to be set apart meant, this is your purpose. I am setting you apart to be used by me. And oftentimes we want to set God apart and say, God, I'll use you when I need it when I'm desperate and when I can call on you. But God says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to live a life that follows me, you have to recognize that you're mine and you are and I know you intimately and I made you. And this is important and it's important for me because I don't like to hear that. I love to think about controlling my life. At least that I can pretend like I have some kind of control of it. But if I'm really going to follow Jesus, it means that I've been set apart for God to use me in whatever way that God wants, at whatever time God wants, and however God wants. And this is what he's telling Jeremiah. He's saying, listen, before you were, I formed you and I knew you, and I set you apart to be used by me, to appoint you as a prophet of the nations. 
This is your calling. Now, a lot of us look at the Bible and we say, well, God called for huge, giant things, and I don't believe that God's calling me to be a prophet to the nations. No, but call really works the same way. When God speaks into our lives, we have to recognize that it's God's initiative and that we are called to follow him. Calling can come everything from a huge life thing to something as simple as saying, I believe that God's calling me to speak to my dad who I haven't spoke to in 17 years. And I don't want to. I don't want to at all. I believe that God's inviting me to and calling me to, to invite my coworker to church or that God's calling me to change careers. I mean, calling takes on a whole kind of variety of forms. But Jeremiah receives God's call nonetheless, right? So he says this. Jeremiah's response to all these things is this. Ah, <laughs> I wonder what that translates as. Ah, sovereign Lord. I do not know how to speak. I'm only a child. So right on cue, what does Jeremiah do? He comes up with an excuse. Right on cue, he's like, oh, God, I hear you. Sovereign Lord, I hear you. But I'm only a child. How can I speak? Now, scholars kind of put Jeremiah somewhere in the ages of 16 to 20. So it's not like he was four, right? He was 16 to 20. But his excuse really is, I'm just a child. And I really think it has nothing to do with him being a child. I'll kind of show you why in a minute. But he says, ah, sovereign Lord. Oh, I wish. Like, I could have. I can't. Just a kid. And, you know, granted, on his human kind of thinking, he's got a point. I mean, he's going to have to go and look at the kingdom, king of Ju Judah, which was Josiah at the time, who ends up being a pretty good king. But he's going to have to walk into this guy's life and say, God is going to kill you. Just going to let you know. And he knows that by doing that to a king, he's going to take his life into his own hands. If any of you have read the book of Esther, you know that as you can't approach a king, when Esther has to go before the king, she'd recognize that the king could kill her. With one move of his little staff, he could take her whole life. I mean, kingdoms are powerful things, and kings are powerful people. He knows. And so he's like, oh, Lord, if I just wasn't a kid, you know, it's almost like he got the wrong guy. And I love that because, I mean, really, the truth is, is what, what, what Jeremiah does is what you and I do all the time. He looks at God and he says, sovereign Lord. You know that word sovereign? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. It means God who is in control of all things. God who is totally powerful. God that knows everything, whose nothing is beyond your, your kind of grasp. That kind of God, I believe that. I just don't believe it about me. So he actually kind of gives himself away. He says, God who is in control and can do all things. You just can't do it through me. I'm just a kid. And as I read this, I thought, this is so me and the Lord all the time. God, I believe that you are mighty and holy and perfect and that you can do everything. I'm just not sure you can do it in me. Because at the end of the day, for Jeremiah, it was trust. I mean, how good are we at this? We tell God how great he is and how mighty he is and how he can heal and he can protect and he can provide and he can do all these things. But it just changes everything when it has to do with me. Because I can believe, God, that you do it for everybody else. You're sovereign. But you're not sovereign enough or big enough to use a child. 16-year-old kid. Man, I tell this to the Lord all the time. God, you are big, and you can do things, and you can change the world. I just don't know that, that you, you're going to do it through me. So right on cue, Jeremiah kind of posts this little excuse, Right? And then, of course, right on cue, God has a response. So God responds to Jeremiah by saying this, But the Lord said to me, 
do not say I'm only a child. You must go wherever I command you, and you must say whatever I command you to say. So do not say you're only a child. You must go everywhere I send you, excuse me, and say whatever I command you. I love this because God, God doesn't tell Jeremiah he's not a kid. He doesn't be like, oh, it's right, you are a child. You know, we want God to sort of at least give power to some of our excuses sometimes and why we won't follow. We want to have a God that puts his arm around us and says, you know what, you are so right. You are a child. So here's what we'll do. We'll take it real slow. And I'll unfold the steps as they go, and I will be with you all the time, and it will be okay. We want God to at least hear our excuses and give value to them. And God doesn't deny that Jeremiah is a kid. He says, don't say you're only a child. Because you must go where I send you and say what I tell you to say. I mean, at the end of the day, what God is saying is he's saying, you are a kid. Good. Now get over it and go where I tell you to go. I mean, God is reassuring. So Jeremiah has his objection. God reassures. And listen to how God reassures. He says, get over this little, you're in a child excuse, okay? And he says this, do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. So the Lord sees through Jeremiah's, I'm a child, because God says, don't be afraid of them. Well, Jeremiah never said he was afraid of anybody. He just said, I'm a kid. Well, God knew that at the end of the day, or really at the, at the source of it, it wasn't about anything other than fear for Jeremiah. It wasn't about being a child. It was about being afraid. It's about afraid of trust. I mean, we're here in the middle of this, right? God says, don't be afraid of them. I mean, our excuses for the Lord are really rooted in the same areas. We just don't trust. So we come up with a whole bag of reasons why we can't do this or won't do that or, or don't want to listen to the Lord, but it really comes down to trust. And it did with Jeremiah. God says, don't be afraid of them. God saw through all of it. You're just afraid of them. And maybe Jeremiah was right to be afraid of him. I mean, these people could take his life. Here's a 16-year-old boy going before the wise of the wise and the kingdoms and the nations of people and, and the southern kingdom, and he's saying, God's going to destroy you. And he says, don't be afraid of him. God says, I will be with you, and I will rescue you. I mean, this picture of God being with us in Scripture is present everywhere. Remember, in the, I mean, Jesus even gets the name Emmanuel, right, which is God with us. 28th chapter of Matthew, got, Jesus also says, you know, go and baptize in, in my name literally and I am with you always to the very end of the age. Great commission. I am with you. This picture is all through scripture. I am with you. Don't be afraid of them. Why? Because I'm with you. And also don't be afraid of them because I will rescue you. I love this. And, and I, I spent some time with our, our leadership team not too long ago and I was kind of unpacking this verse a little bit and I was just thinking about, I love the fact that God doesn't say, hey, I am with you and I will protect you and nothing bad will happen. God doesn't say that at all, does he? God says, I will rescue you. Now, if you're anything like me, when God calls me and wants me to follow him, I want assurance from God that nothing bad will happen. I want to be able to say, God, if I'm going to follow you, I want to know that nothing's going to happen. I want to know that if I switch careers and switch jobs, I'm not going to have a financial issue. I want to know that if I speak to my coworker, they're not going to ridicule me. God, I want to know in advance that if I truly follow you, you will protect me and I will be safe. But you know what he tells Jeremiah? He says, I will rescue you. In other words, you will be in such grave danger that you will need someone to rescue you. God doesn't tell Jeremiah he's going to protect him from danger. 
he says that he's going to rescue him when he finds himself in the middle of it. And I was so struck by this because I was thinking, Trev, you need to lead a life that needs to be rescued. What if as followers of Christ, we lived lives that put ourselves in places, such trust in Jesus that we had to, have, we had to be rescued. We had to live lives that said, save me, which is exactly what God says to Jeremiah. He doesn't say, listen, I'll walk with you and protect you and build this force field around you so that no harm will come to you. He just says, I will rescue you. I just love that comfort because it's not perfect, because it's not what I want to hear. When I trust Jesus, I want him to map it out for me and tell me why it's going to work out. And God doesn't do that at all. He says, you're going to be in such grave danger that you're going to need me to rescue you. Following Jesus is dangerous, and it is costly. The reason that your life is not in danger, and I'm not just talking about physically, although sometimes that may happen. I'm talking about spiritually and emotionally. The reason you don't feel in danger and the reason you don't feel need to be rescued is because I wonder if we're really following Christ. All through Scripture, we see the fact that following Jesus is costly. Most of us live such mediocre kind of mediocre mainstream Christian lives that we've never been in need of rescuing or true trust anyway. But Jeremiah gets called to that and he says, I will rescue you. And then God gives him this sign. We'll wrap it all up by saying this. God says this, and then the Lord reached out with his hand and he touched my mouth. It's that sign, right? It goes along with that reassurance. He touched my mouth and he said to me, now I've put my words in your mouth. Listen to how, how God sums it up in verse 17. He says this. After he does all this calling, he says this to Jeremiah in verse 17. Get yourself ready. Stand up and do not say, and say to them whatever I command you. Do not be terrified by them or I will terrify you before them. Today I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar, a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of that land. They will fight against you, but they will not overcome you, for I am with you and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. God shows up in a really tangible way, and he just says, I'm going to touch your mouth as a way of showing you that I'm going to be there. And a lot of times God's sign in our lives, those moments, come through other people. They come through confirmation of people whispering into our hearts. They come through, maybe even it's an audible whisper of God. But God shows up in really tangible ways. He's shown us his faithfulness along the way. So I ask you this simply as a way of, of leaving everything here today. When it comes to the call of your life, the God that speaks to you and calls you to follow him and calls us to radical things, sometimes just tremendously huge things, going to another country or, or changing jobs or speaking or forgiving someone that you don't want to forgive, or whether it's a small whisper that just says, go talk to that person, learn their name. Whatever that call is, what are you afraid of? I mean, what are we really afraid of at the core of who we are? Are we really afraid that, not that God is sovereign and in control, but are we really afraid that we might put ourselves in a place where we need to be rescued and none of us want to be there? My challenge is that as a community, what if we lived lives that needed to be rescued? That lived on such the edge of trust and reliance of Jesus Christ that we found ourselves in places that we say, God, only you can get us out of this. We have to have you. Because the promise of Scripture is that God will never leave us nor forsake us. 
And the promise of Scripture is never that God will prevent our pain, but instead that he will prevail in it. Let's live lives that need to be rescued. Let's pray. God, we thank you for our opportunity here today, and we just pray that you would hear our worship as we close our time, that you would speak to our hearts in really radical, powerful ways. That, God, we might live lives that that need to be rescued. And, And those three statements stand out so strongly to my heart. Do not be afraid. I am with you, and I will rescue you. God, if there's ever been three statements that I need to whisper to my heart more, I don't know what they are. But I believe that you're whispering it to all these folks in this room, and you're whispering it to me. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I am with you, and I will rescue you. God, that we might be a people that believe that, that trust that. God, lead us into lives that need to be rescued. Let's stand together.